Not, a podcast series by Radio Canada International. We will fight until the end if Armenia does not make a commitment that they will withdraw from Peace can't be achieved through the unilateral actions of Armenia. Конечно, это огромная трагедия. Люди гибнут, большие потери. Hello, I'm Levon Sevunz, and this is the Nagorno-Karabakh Nord podcast. Here, we examine the roots of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, its impact on the Armenian and Azerbaijani societies and the larger region, We'll also be looking at possible ways of resolving this conflict. My guest today is Rafi Elliott. He's a Canadian journalist and entrepreneur based in Armenia. Rafi, welcome to Radio Canada International. Thanks for having me. Rafi, can you describe what has happened in Armenia since Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan announced in the middle of the night on November 9th that he was forced to sign a Russian-brokered ceasefire with Azerbaijan's uh, President Ilham Aliyev, uh, essentially admitting defeat in the war. What effect did that have on the Armenian society and politics? Well, uh, the immediate effect, and in fact, the way I found out about this uh, agreement myself was at around three in the morning, because I live on a street that connects the the parliament to the prime minister's official residence. And so at around three in the morning, uh, the street was packed with protesters, angry protesters. And (laughs) uh, that's that's how I found out about the deal. Um, So that was the first reaction, is that uh, a group of people in the middle of the night stormed the Armenian parliament and then later also stormed the prime minister's house. Many of the people involved were later identified via security cameras as people associated with the parties of the old regime, the pre-2018 government in Armenia. Um, I think a lot of people, though, were quite shocked at the news and both in terms of how sudden it was given that most people had gone to bed knowing that the fighting was ongoing and that the situation while not stellar was under the control of the armenian armed forces uh so for many people waking up to the news uh it was quite a a shock especially since there weren't a lot of details associated with with the announcement. Uh, Pashinyan, of course, waited till the next day until he formally addressed the uh, Armenian people and answered a number of the questions uh, that many people had, you know, about how this had happened, why nobody had been consulted before that. You know, one big concern is that uh, Pashinyan had always promised that any resolution to the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict uh, would be um, decided by 
either referendum or some sort of a popular consultation. So a lot of people found that uh, very sudden and unlike his previous promise. Of course, Pashinyan explained that the deal had to be signed rather quickly given the deteriorating military situation, uh, at which time there was just really no possibility of actually engaging in any sort of national dialogue in a, in a matter of hours necessary to sign the agreement. Um, since then, I think, you know, th we're, this was two weeks ago now. In the meantime, uh, more information has come out. Uh, many of the soldiers themselves have begun to return, and more details about the agreement have also come out, which have... Um, it's widened a lot of the public discussion over the issue. And most of the um, discussion has actually remained quite uh, peaceful, uh, if somewhat emotionally charged, of course, uh, with certain people calling for the prime minister's resignation, uh, particularly members of parties once more associated with the, the, the government that Pashinyan had overthrown in the 2018 Velvet Revolution. But there are also many among the supporters of the Velvet Revolution who have also called on his resignation, if not for calling him a traitor for signing the treaty, but just because of what they considered to be his um, lack of experience and incompetence in managing the war itself, but also Armenia's uh, diplomatic uh, outreach and so on. Mm. That ceasefire declaration signed by Armenia, Azerbaijan and Russia has created new facts on the ground in Nagorno-Karabakh and on Armenia's eastern and southeastern borders. Can you explain to our listeners, uh, especially international listeners who might not be as familiar with this uh, region, what has changed on the ground? So for those who aren't familiar, a quick background would be that the territory in question, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, which Armenians uh, call via its historic name uh, Artsakh, is a historically Armenian populated area that upon both Armenia and Azerbaijan being incorporated into the Soviet Union, was formalized by the Soviets into uh, into an, what they call an autonomous oblast or a province within the territory of the Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan. And its official borders were uh, reduced and it was separated physically from the borders of Soviet Armenia. And so by, you know, some five or ten kilometers, making it entirely surrounded by the territory of the Republic of Azerbaijan. And so when the, uh, the first Karabakh war upon the dissolution of the, the Soviet Union was fought, uh, the Armenians both uh, took over the territory itself as well as seven, uh, or the majority of seven districts which the Azeris considered part of Azerbaijan proper. And this the Armenians justified as being necessary to connect the territory to Armenia and also to create a buffer territory uh, to keep Azerbaijani artillery away from population centers in Nagorno-Karabakh. And so this border ended up, or this, this territory ended up reaching all the way down to the Iranian border for stretching some 
50 to 60 kilometers from Armenia's own border along the Iranian border. And so uh, during the war itself, the Azerbaijanis using uh, Turkish piloted drones succeeded in retaking a lot of or several of these territories, which have been essentially uh, uninhabited since 1994 along the Iranian border, and then began to try to move north. Um, however, um, by the time the ceasefire was signed, the Azerbaijanis had conquered roughly a quarter to about a third of the territory which had previously been controlled by the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic. Uh, however, with the ceasefire agreement, Azerbaijan was to keep all territories which it had captured during the war, including the cities of Hadrut and Shushi, which is symbolic to both the Armenians and the Azeris, but both of which were included in the Soviet-era borders of Nagorno-Karabakh. But Armenia also had to, uh, or the Armenian forces also had to relinquish control of the three other territories which it had controlled. So uh, Kalbajar, Agdam, and parts of Lachin. Uh, with a five-kilometer-wide corridor between uh, Armenia proper and the Karabakhi capital of Stepanakert remaining and being patrolled by uh, Russian forces. So it, it, essentially, the, the Azeris were able to uh, through negotiations, retake control of a large part of territory which they were uh, uh, unsuccessful in conquering militarily. However, the majority of the Soviet borders of Nagorno-Karabakh remain under Armenian control, minus, as I said, the cities of Hadrut and Shushi. We haven't mentioned a, a huge change on the ground, at least a new player on the ground, and that's the, the Russian peacekeepers. Uh, what has been going on with the deployment of Russian peacekeepers? And uh, um, there, there, there are also reports that Turkey is trying to get its own either peacekeepers or peace monitors uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh as well. That's right. So the presence of uh, the Russian peacekeepers makes uh, a huge difference, I think, in terms of creating a security guarantee for the return of IDPs back to Karabakh, uh, Armenian refugees. Uh, in fact, already several thousand Armenians have already returned to their homes in Nagorno-Karabakh in the last week or so, and that trend is expected to continue. And the uh, Armenian government, the authorities, the local authorities, have pledged to uh, rebuild public infrastructure build new housing for IDPs and cover, uh, you know, um, utilities costs for the next year or so in order to facilitate the return of IDPs. Uh, but the presence of the Russian, Russian peacekeepers, uh, first of all, has also been clarified a little bit more over the last week or so, because at the beginning there were a lot of questions as to where they were to be deployed and what what parts of the territory were under their jurisdiction. Uh, Armenians, of course, were really concerned about uh, certain uh, monasteries, which, which are medieval and even uh, pre-medieval uh, sites of 
religious and also cultural importance to Armenians that uh, under the agreement were apparently meant to be uh, under Azerbaijani control. However, they have since been uh, under Russian protection, which I think has uh, made this whole process a little bit easier to digest for many Armenians. Uh, but most importantly, I think the presence of Russians, which although theoretically is uh, guaranteed for a minimum of five years, given the Russians' um, historic um, uh, experience with peacekeeping missions, may as well be forever, uh, provides Karabakh, even at a, at a geographically reduced size, a security guarantee that it really never had before, because no Azeri would ever dare shoot at a Russian peacekeeper. So that may facilitate the revival of the territory and may make it easier to deal with other issues such as the corridors and so on and so forth, which are not completely resolved yet. The presence now of Turkish um, peacekeepers, and again, I use peacekeepers in quotation marks here because they are effectively occupation armies, is another uh, ill-defined and contentious issue, mostly because while it had been announced since the beginning of the, uh, the ceasefire agreement that, that Turkish uh, peacekeepers would be involved uh, in the settlement of the issue, uh, one major uh, diplomatic objective for Armenia was to keep Turkey out of any uh, negotiation table on the resolution of this issue for the obvious reason that Turkey is Azerbaijan's uh, military patron and Turkey still does not recognize its uh, genocide of 1.5 million Armenians 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, this is something in, where, in which Armenia's uh, objectives align with Russian interests. And so, in this case, uh, it seems that there was an, that Turkish peacekeepers were allowed, although, Arme although uh, the Russian foreign ministry stressed uh, in no uncertain terms that no Turkish peacekeeper would be stationed anywhere near uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. So that means that they get to go to Azerbaijan, but they don't actively take part in any peacekeeping operation in the commonly understood sense of the term, uh, which I think was very reassuring to Armenians. But then they also announced that they would open a joint peacekeeping center in a town that is roughly 50 or 60 kilometers away from the nearest uh, Karabakh border, so it's not even close to Nagorno-Karabakh. But it also seems like the Turks have different ideas about what their peacekeeping mission actually is. So this is something that will probably have to be clarified in the coming days and weeks. You're listening to the Nagorno-Karabakh Knot, a podcast series by Radio Canada International. My guest today is Rafi Elliott. He's a Canadian journalist and entrepreneur based in Armenia. Rafi, you've just recently returned from uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. How are people coping with this new, new reality? Uh, people in Nagorno-Karabakh yes. are um, 
coping with a lot of the uncertainty and but also just the fact that a situation that had remi- remained dormant for a quarter century resolved itself essentially overnight. Um, so for people who were in the parts of the territories that were under the Republic of Karabakh's control, which suddenly are cited to be uh, handed over to Azerbaijani control, uh, are obviously evacuating and taking everything with them. They have no intention of leaving anything uh, to the Azeris. Many of these people have uncertain futures. They don't know where they'll be living. And sadly, many of these people themselves are actually being displaced for the second time because they, they are themselves either people who had escaped the pogroms in Baku in 1990 or 1991, uh, but also from other parts of Nagorno-Karabakh, like the Shahumyan region, which were, were successfully ethnically cleansed by Azeri forces in 1990. These people now have to find themselves uh, being displaced a second time. So obviously for them it's quite tragic. Uh, But since I've been there, there seems to have been a return of order uh, in Karabakh itself, uh, especially since, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, some of the aspects of the deal have been clarified. Uh, but there are still cases in which, um, you know, certain villages or the inhabitants of villages discovered, you know, on the the, the day before that their village is, is uh, scheduled to be handed over to the Azeris, uh, you know, and so they have to scramble to, to, to uproot and leave. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's a very traumatic uh, situation for a lot of uh, people there, but also for Armenians in general, who for the second time in about a century have to watch, uh, have to look at images of Armenians packing up and marching down a road and being chased off of their indigenous lands. So what are some of the most immediate needs and concerns in Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh today? During the war, up to 100,000 Armenians were displaced either internally within Artsakh or were having fled to Armenia itself. Uh, throughout the war, Armenia and Azerbaijan agreed to three separate ceasefires, each one brokered by a separate uh, chair of the OSCE Minsk group. So first one was the Russians, followed by the French and then the Americans. All three were broken by Azerbaijan, usually within hours of them going into effect. But the initial uh, reasoning for the ceasefires was for the exchange of bodies and of prisoners, which obviously did not did not uh, take place. So as a result, uh, much of the area has been scattered with the bodies of of fallen soldiers from both sides and also of the Syrian jihadis. Uh, but then we also have other cases of uh, war crimes being uh, surfacing on the internet. Uh, ironically enough, often uh, posted online by the Azeris themselves, which has added to the urgency when it comes to uh, the, re- the exchange of, of prisoners and bodies. 
especially on the Armenian side. Many people are still looking for missing uh, family members who haven't, who they haven't heard from in uh, weeks in many cases. We know that there's some 20 or so Armenian prisoners of war on the Azeri side, and there's a similar number of Azeri prisoners on the Armenian side. Uh, supposedly, this is being um, uh, arranged by the Red Cross, which is working on both sides and is taking a lead in terms of uh, prisoner and body exchanges. However, uh, the prisoner exchanges have still not happened, and a lot of people in Armenia are justifiably concerned over the, uh, the, the safety and security of their family members. Uh, another issue that also surfaced recently is the disappearance of several uh, Armenians on that corridor to Karabakh, which is uh, officially being patrolled by the Russian army. Uh, since the ceasefire itself was signed, I believe about 11 people have gone missing since the ceasefire agreement went into effect. Into effect. Some of them have actually emerged in videos published once more by the Azeri soldiers themselves, in which they're shown being humiliated and forced to, uh, you know, kiss Azeri flags and so on and so forth. So at least we know they're alive, and other cases we haven't heard from them. So this is certainly something that uh, the uh, Armenian ombudsman is uh, collecting evidence for, and the hope is that this evidence will be presented to various international human rights courts. Now, um, as you described, uh, this was an exceptionally bloody and brutal war with thousands of people killed and injured on both sides in just 44 days. Uh, but uh, the ceasefire declaration has also laid the ground uh, f uh, for the reopening of the road and rail communications between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, what do you see as the roadmap to uh, some kind of a peace or some form of reconciliation between Armenia and Azerbaijan? I think, you know, um, there's that uh, famous saying that's attributed to uh, the French 19th century economist uh, Frédéric Bastiat, who says, uh, he says uh, when trade stop, uh, when uh, goods stop crossing borders, armies do. Uh, of course, in the case in, in our particular case, uh, the armies just stopped crossing the borders. So maybe there's a an opportunity for the goods to start crossing the borders. Uh, that's certainly one uh, potential potentially beneficial outcome. You know, I I personally believe that uh, trade strengthens relationships between neighboring countries. However, uh, this sort of animosity between the two countries doesn't disappear overnight. Um, a lot of people bring up the example of, you know, France and Germany after World War II. But we also forget that Germany had the Nuremberg trials. Uh, is, uh, who, is, who is going to try the people who are responsible for these, uh, these, uh, these atrocities? But it's not just the atrocities, it's also the ethnic cleansing. As I mentioned, the city of Hadrut, which is which was always an uncontestedly part of the Armenian territory of Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, has been entirely cleansed of its Armenian population, which has been living there since antiquity, overnight. Uh, 
you know that how how do you get over this who do you uh, who who brings justice in these cases uh, it's going to be very difficult for armenians to ever accept any sort of relationships with either azerbaijan or even turkey for that matter given that turkey not only doesn't recognize its own fault in you know the uh, planned and industrially executed uh, extermination of 1.5 million armenians uh, a century ago but also given the opportunity clearly has no qualms about doing it again so the question of justice i think for armenians is is primordial to any um to any hopes of lasting peace i suppose with either azerbaijan or turkey the the positive the positive outcome of course of the war is that under russian tutelage now these borders are forced open whether we like them or not it's unlikely that you will see armenian tourists going across to visit azerbaijan in the next 5 10 20 or 100 years but maybe you'll see truckers moving goods across maybe people will realize that moving goods from baku to turkey through armenia for example is more effective and cost efficient than going through georgia and of course uh, for armenia there's also the prospect of opening a rail line uh, to iran which is something that armenia has always wanted to but but the prospect was always cost prohibitive now obviously a lot of these uh trade routes are designed by the people who um who crafted the peace agreement in other words the russians for their own interests you know but that doesn't mean armenia and probably even azerbaijan won't benefit from them but then there are a lot of unanswered questions you know when we're talking about trade routes like armenia and azerbaijan still do not have any um any representation in each other's countries so and how will that how will that happen i mean do we imagine opening an armenian embassy in baku tomorrow or next year who will staff it uh, or will it be something more like i don't know uh the the way that switzerland deals with uh, us diplomatic relations with cuba in havana you know maybe there will be maybe relations will be done through a proxy there's so many questions here that are not yet answered and a lot of them a lot of these questions will really depend on the way the uh, whatever final resolution is accepted for the nagorno-karabakh conflict itself which i should point out is still not actually resolved So in what, the short term. So what do you think needs to happen in this next 5-10 years? For a, a resolution? Yes. To the conflict? Yes. I mean ideally I would say some form of final resolution to the status of Nagorno-Karabakh which uh let's be honest doesn't include it in any uh country called azerbaijan that 
in one way or another, I think that it is less acceptable now than ever for the Armenians, either in Armenia or within Nagorno-Karabakh itself, to see what's re what remains of Nagorno-Karabakh ever being incorporated into the territory under Baku's authority that is simply no longer on the table from the Armenian perspective. Uh, how realistic that'll be, again, it, it, it's really predicated on the understanding that the status quo that existed until September 26th no longer uh, exists, and that both Armenia and Azerbaijan's foreign policy in this regard have now been ceded to Russia. And so there's very little left in our own, uh, in, in Armenia's, uh, in Armenia's ability to influence final decisions here on their own. So I think the real, the real answer as to what will happen into the five to ten years mark is whatever Russia feels is acceptable to its own interests. But is the society in Armenia gearing up for peace or is it gearing up for another war or, um, you know, trying to settle the scores? Right now, Armenian society is confused, I think is the best way to answer the question. Some are gearing up for war. Some are also gearing up for a more existential war that is not necessarily predicated on territories in Nagorno-Karabakh. In other words, some people are probably thinking that we have to be ready for five years from now to retake all these territories. But others are also concerned that the war has proven not only the lack of security in Nagorno-Karabakh, but the existential threats to Armenia itself. And therefore, there is this view of, you know, uh, to make peace, prepare for war, right? Uh, again, a lot of this will depend on how uh, any resolution to the Karabakh conflicts comes about. I think there's a general consensus in Armenia that whatever the, the resolution is, that this territory can never be part of Azerbaijan. And then there may be there might be uh, disagreements in terms of what the actual status would be. Uh, Ar the Armenian leadership has already officially essentially said that their goal now is to push for international recognition of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. And on the other hand, Azerbaijan has uh, announced that, that there is no question of status because all of Karabakh is an integral part of what they call multicultural Azerbaijan. So we're back to square one. We're back to square one because uh, both, both sides have hardened their positions even more than they had before this war. But interestingly enough, the Russians have since, or more specifically, President Putin has clarified that in his view, the status of Nagorno-Karabakh has not yet been solved, which contradicts uh, very directly what the leadership in Azerbaijan just said. Rafi, thank you very much for this very interesting conversation. Thank you for having me. 
My guest today was Rafi Elliott. He's a Canadian journalist and entrepreneur based in Armenia, and we reached him in Yerevan. I'm Levon Sevunz, and you've been listening to the Nagorno-Karabakh Knot, a podcast series by Radio Canada International. As part of this series, I spoke with Canadian, Armenian, Azerbaijani, and Russian experts and journalists. I wanted to get their insights and perspectives into the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. But I also wanted to explore ways of resolving it. And as you heard, there are no easy answers. It would take years, if not decades, for the scars and the festering wounds of this bloody conflict to even begin to heal. But I want to leave you on a hopeful note. And it's that music that you've been hearing in the background of this podcast in all of its episodes. It was composed by Sayat Nova, an 18th century Armenian troubadour who lived in Georgia. Sayat Nova wrote his songs in Armenian, Azerbaijani and Georgian. His music represents the shared cultural heritage of the South Caucasus, a testament to a time when Armenians and Azerbaijanis not only lived side by side and traded with each other, but also sang love songs in each other's languages. And I'll leave you with that thought. Thank you.